Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hello, everyone, uh, to this episode of Into the Magic Shop. I'm pleased to have uh, Nilama Ayers uh, with me today. And the reason we're doing this podcast actually uh, is because, as many of you know, I am the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. And one of the programs that we offer is called Applied Compassion Training. And uh, um, Nilama is one of the directors of that program. And I, uh, in many ways, just wanted to share with you uh, what we do in this program and talk to Nilama and have her give us not only a little bit of background about herself, but also about the program. And then we're going to have a little bit of discussion about uh, the Applied Compassion Training Program, which one uh, offers one the ability to develop a capstone project uh, to implement in their own organization uh, when they're uh, when they've completed the course, but also uh, a different way to see the world and one that will empower you uh, in many ways um, to not only be compassionate to yourself, but to offer compassion uh, to others. So uh, good morning, Nilama. Good morning, Dr. Doty. Thanks for having me. Sure. It's uh, uh, always my pleasure to uh, interact with you. As uh, well. <laughs> you know, one of the... Uh, um, things I think that would be helpful for people is just to have you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're motivated not only uh, to be involved with C-Care in this program, but uh, to be of service to others by uh, helping them understand themselves a little bit better, develop self-awareness, and uh, recognize um that oftentimes uh, they themselves are not kind to themselves and how that uh, in some ways clouds their perspective of uh, others. Hmm. Thank you. That's a big question there. Um, so I'll try to, I'll try to get all that in a little bit about myself and maybe it is connected to how I found my way to compassion. You know, I was raised in a, in a relatively small town in upstate New York and raised in two different religions. And I think as a kid, I was trying to make sense of these two faiths that to a nine-year-old seemed pretty different. And one of the commonalities um, in both of my traditions, I was raised Catholic and Jewish, uh, obviously was compassion. Um, it was kind of the undercurrent, you know, underneath all the teachings and the dogma and the ritual um, in both traditions is a real core of what we would call compassion, um, recognizing suffering where we see it and doing whatever we can to help alleviate that suffering. So from a very young age, that was instilled in me and also something I used to sort of bridge the two worlds that I was being raised in. Um, and, you know, that's in one sense been my whole career in different facets, teaching workshops um, for personal growth and development. Of course, compassion is always a big part of that. You know, as you written and talked about so much in your work, when people start doing work on themselves, <clears throat> they realize there's a greater awareness of how unkind we are to ourselves. So in any, in any journey of personal development, we inevitably bump into 
um, those voices, those negative voices, those negative beliefs we hold about ourselves. So even early on in my career, compassion was a big driving force um, in the personal development work I did with people. And then fast forward a little further down the road, um, I was doing that work. I had started my my company with my husband at the time. We were both teachers um, and suddenly found ourselves going through our own divorce. Um, and really that's where I think the rubber hit the road for me around compassion. And it was very easy at the beginning of the divorce to try to fall into sort of all the things the ego does when it's breaking up a relationship, right? Blaming myself, blaming him. Um, and so quickly compassion came in for me as one of the, I would almost call it one of the healing medicines that got us through our own divorce and allowed us to keep working together and teaching together. And by that time we had a son together. So raising our son together, um, and it was in that divorce um, process where I met Robert Cusick, one of our other uh, co-founders um, of the Applied Compassion Training. And, and Robert and I started teaching compassion workshops and retreats together. And in those workshops and retreats, we discovered that people could come and have a wonderful experience of compassion, be it for self or others, but we, we had a constant wondering of, is this translating back into their worlds, into their workplaces, into their communities? Um, and it was at one of those compassion weekends that the idea of ACT came out. Um, Robert likes to tell the story. It came out on a, on a coffee napkin at, at a cafe not too far from Palo Alto, where Seacare is located at Stanford. Um, and we just had this idea of what if we guided people into a much longer training? As you know, ACT is almost a year-long training. Um, what if we guided people through a much longer training and empowered them <clears throat> to not only cultivate compassion for themselves and others, but really empowered them with the skills to take this back and make a meaningful difference um, in their worlds where they came across suffering? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, <clears throat> oftentimes uh, when people think of compassion, they think of it as sort of your weak, uh, your milk toast. You allow people to uh, step on you and take advantage of you. Can you just comment on that from your own perspective? Sure. I'm really glad you brought that up. I would say that's one of the things, one of the myths we're trying to disrupt through, through ACT, um, through the program, which is this notion that if I'm compassionate for this person, be it my ex-spouse who I'm getting a divorce from, or be it you know, a boss who's a bully, or be it a political figure that I vehemently disagree with. If I'm compassion for the, if I have compassion for that person, is that going to make me weak? Um, and we've actually found the opposite. Um, it takes, in a way, great strength to be compassionate. And I think one of the things about, you know, it's going to make me a doormat or it's going to make me engage in a relationship that's unhealthy. We've really made the distinction between compassion as an inner attitude and a perspective, an orientation that you can hold someone with versus 
how you act in the world. So for example, if you're divorcing, if you're going through a divorce, th this wasn't the case with my ex-husband, by the way, we're dear friends. But if you're going through a divorce and the person you're divorcing is exhibiting unhealthy, violent, or harmful behavior, it is not compassionate towards yourself to stay in that relationship or put yourself or your family in harm's way. However, you can put up that boundary with that person. You can step away from that person. You can decide never to interact with them again from a stance of compassion versus a stance of what we might call hatred. So, you know, there are there's a family member I myself have who I cannot be around that person. It's not healthy for me, um, but I can have tremendous compassion for them. I can even understand they had a really difficult childhood. You know, unhealthy behavior, as you know, as you've talked so much about in your work, Dr. Doty, unhealthy behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's the result usually of some significant trauma. So I can have compassion for that person and the trauma they went through, and at the same time, put up a very fierce boundary. We might call this in our work, fierce compassion. Put up a very firm boundary and say, no more. I cannot tolerate this behavior, um, but I can still in my heart hold that person with compassion, recognize their suffering, and wish them to be free from that suffering. And, and in a way, I do that as much as for myself as for them, because that keeps my heart open, right? When we start to hold someone in hatred, that, that corrodes and closes down our own heart. And we know now, there's enough science now to know that's not healthy for us. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up uh, um, because we see sort of this ever-increasing divisiveness and anger and hostility towards others. And it, in some ways, it very much saddens me because, you, as you know, uh, to hold hate in your heart uh, shuts you down, uh, actually, to even listening. Uh, but more sadly, uh, it has a huge negative physiologic effect and uh, it has a huge effect on those around you, I think, especially children, because children have a tendency, you know, to model the behavior of adults. Absolutely. Yes. And it, like you said, it has a huge physiological effect. It has, you know, I've worked in my career, I've had the privilege to work with thousands of people at this point, and I've seen what holding that hate, obviously I'm not seeing it from the physiological standpoint, but from the psychological and emotional standpoint, it can shut people down. It can corrode relationships um, and it can really impact the quality of people's lives, right? Even from a personal standpoint, it's hard to move forward um, when there's that kind of hatred and constriction in our own hearts. No, no, that's, uh, that's exactly right. Um, let's talk about the ACT program a little bit uh, more, and maybe you can describe what it is and what uh, the goal of the program is for individuals who take the program, and maybe the type of people who are uh, in the program, who sign up for the program, and maybe even a few examples of uh, projects that they've done, because of course, uh, capstone projects are an innate part of this program. And it's one in which you uh, and the other uh, directors uh, are intimately involved in terms of mentoring them. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to do that. So as I said, when the idea dawned, um, first and foremost, it was an idea that we could create a much longer training where we could bring people into the program who not only had an interest in cultivating compassion, that was already very much there in the compassion work being done in the world. But what we wanted to do different in this program is how do we harness people's experiences of compassion, be it for self or others, and translate that into real world action. So that's sort of the overarching vision. And the way we do this um, together with Robert Cusick and Monica Hansen, my co-founders, people come in um, at the beginning of the year. So the program starts in January and they're really walked through an 11 month process. Um, that's a combination of two things. I like to think about a train on two tracks and one track absolutely is the personal development track because, you know, in order to be what we're calling people when they graduate from the program, as you know, in order to be an ambassador, of compassion, you have to be able to transmit compassion and to sometimes transmit compassion in very difficult situations. In order to do that, one's personal development is of utmost importance. So there's a big personal development track. In addition, I think the track that ACT is really uniquely adding here is how do we help someone take an idea? And I'll give you some examples of these in a minute, but how do we have someone take an idea? Oh, I want to bring compassion into my place of work. I want to bring my compassion, bring compassion into my hospital. I want to bring compassion into my court of law or my community. How do we help someone move from an idea of that to actually doing it? Um, and so the program is a very curated step-by-step -step process of moving someone from idea to execution of that idea. And you, as you can imagine, people bump into anything we as humans bump into when we want to put ourselves out into the world. Um, you know, there may be self-doubt that arises or the imposter syndrome, or can I really do this in my workplace? So we, we work with each individual. That's why um, they do get personal mentoring from Robert, Monica, or myself, because we work with them over the course of these 11 months pretty regularly to have them overcome those inner obstacles and then to have them design a compassion offering that's unique to their setting. So that's the other maybe differentiator of this program. Um, it, you're very familiar with other compassion trainings where people are learning a specific protocol. We made a decision early on, as you know, in this program, not to teach a protocol of compassion, but to empower people with we, what we call the principles of applied compassion. You could think of these as like the foundational ingredients. Um, these principles of applied compassion and the practices of applied compassion. Um, they're learning those throughout the 11 months, and then they're taking those principles and practices and looking into their environment and saying, okay, what is the particular suffering in this environment, right? The suffering of a nurse in an ICU unit is going to be different than the suffering of lawyers working with immigration you know, policies or different from what kids in classrooms dealing with anxiety. So 
while the experience of suffering, as we know, is in one sense similar to all of us as human beings, the context of that suffering is very different. And what might work in a corporate environment um, might not work at all in a in a you know sixth grade classroom. So this is where we help people get in there and discover what's the recipe for compassion that best fits the type of people that you're trying to help. Um, and over those 11 months, we create that recipe together. And you, uh, to your to your question, we've had at this point, we're four years into this, so we're rel a relatively new program in the compassion space still, but we've had um, almost 500 people go through the program, 40 countries around the world, and there have been compassion projects developed. If you can think of an industry, there's probably been a compassion project developed at this point in ACT for that industry. As I said, healthcare, education, both higher education and even younger kids, um, people doing capstone projects to help youth dealing with these unprecedented levels of anxiety and depression. There's people doing capstone projects to help judges in courtroom settings be a little more sensitive to the plight um, of people in a court of law and how can we be more, even more attuned to the basic common humanity that unites us all. There's compassion projects being done in big companies, um, big, big systems where people are trying to affect great systemic change all the way down to smaller compassion projects that are delivered at the community level where you may just have a handful. Um, there've been projects of, you know, helping new mothers in those early days of raising a child and the challenges to new mothers. So I think you were just in attendance at a capstone project a couple weeks ago that was an art installation. People using art to evoke compassion within the viewers. Um, we've had people doing compassion projects as music and dance workshops. So really and truly, it's it, not having people feel like they have to adhere to a specific protocol has created a freedom for people to be much more responsive to the suffering in their settings. And this is really from Stanford, right? There's a whole approach at Stanford known as design thinking, where you test out an idea with your audience and you see what works and you see what doesn't and you iterate and you iterate. And people are often shocked when we tell them, you're going to be delivering your project during this program. It's not like you get your degree and then you go out and do it. Part of how you get your certificate is by doing it. So it's very much that Stanford learning by doing model that people initially are a little scared of, as you can imagine, um, but then come to really love and feel an incredible freedom around that, wow, I have this in me to do this now. Um, and if I'm empowered with the right tools and practices, I can affect great change right now in my environment. I don't have to wait um, to become an expert, quote unquote, on compassion. Well, uh, you know, I think this brings up a couple interesting points. Uh, it always fascinates me, but not uh, surprising to me how so many people though uh, are intimidated or fearful of being judged if they show uh, their authentic feelings uh, or actually, if you want to call it, uh, display compassion, maybe shed a tear, understand somebody. 
uh, but uh, they're terrified they're going to be judged. What are your thoughts on that? And uh, why do you think that is? And how do you overcome it? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think there's a couple of levels that we could look at that from. If you if you are raised in an environment, be it your family environment, your cultural environment, maybe even you know external schooling environment, where compassion was not properly understood or modeled, or where you were at a young age judged or bullied for those things, yes, there will be. Um, of course, a greater layer of protection uh, built up around being vulnerable and being transparent. I mean, you could take this even to a deeper level, which would be more the spiritual level, right? Often in our early childhood environment, our own parents, our own caregivers, not, not because they're bad people necessarily, but because they're also disconnected from what I might call your own spiritual center, that center in us that naturally emanates compassion, love, kindness. Again, as I was sharing at the beginning, the core of any healthy (laughs) religious or spiritual tradition are those qualities that make us who we are. Um, And to to the degree those are mirrored or not mirrored and modeled in childhood, that's going to be the degree that there's a protective mechanism built up. Um, And combine that with, I think, I don't think this is specific to America, but I think we have a higher, um, a higher misunderstanding in this culture that the way to success is by pushing someone, by judging someone, by criticizing someone. That's how you're going to get them to perform better. I can just say in ACT, we've completely disrupted that. Um, you know, we're empowering people based on something we call appreciative feedback, which is kind of mirroring the goodness of each person, mirroring the potential of each person and each project. And when you do that, it makes people want to want to um, overcome those hurdles of insecurity. It makes people feel better about themselves. It makes people feel more connected to who they are and. We have heard in four years over and over repeated to us that I actually feel more empowered to go out and do this, not because I've been judged and condemned and criticized, but because I've literally been lifted up. I mean, it's amazing how easy it is when we sort of get that orientation right. Um, And a lot of it is self-compassion, as you've described in your book and in your work. And that's one of the surprising things for people coming into the program. You said what kind of people come into the program. The cool thing, Dr. Doty, is we have people from all walks of life. you know, you you could think of, you know, very professionals. We've had CEOs, we've had doctors, nurses, lawyers, uh, managers, and all the way down to people that aren't even employed. They're just retired or they're, they're parents that are at home and they want to contribute to their community or an organization that they're part of. So we've had, again, this, this real um, swath of, of humanity in the most beautiful way come into the program. And I've seen over and over, whether I'm working with a CEO or I'm working with a doctor or I'm working with a stay-at-home mom or dad, we all carry this fundamental misunderstanding of who we are. 
Um, and this fundamental judgment, I mean, I don't think it's fundamental. That's actually not the right word. It's a learned behavior to judge and critique ourselves. And when people get exposed in the program to self-compassion for the first time, they're astonished. They're astonished to see how unkind they've been to themselves. Some of them haven't even realized how unkind. And that's for many people in the program, the great game changer. Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. There's an assumption, I think, sometimes that uh, a lot of people who suffer uh, are indigent or poor or have been in those types of circumstances. But maybe you can comment on your own experience and the reality that there are many people who seemingly come from affluent backgrounds. And I think the point is uh, for people to understand that affluence doesn't protect you from suffering. Absolutely. I mean, 100%. Um, affluence doesn't protect you from suffering because suffering is part of the human condition. Now, we can, of course, recognize there are degrees of suffering, right? My suffering here, <laughs> having a home, having heat, having electricity is different, no question, in, in extreme to someone who's living in a, in a war zone right now. So there are degrees of suffering and there are communities and cultures that without question suffer to greater degrees. That we know, it's indisputable. At the same time, what the compassion teachings have tried to show me and, and others is the, the fundamental experience of suffering is something we all know as humans. We've all experienced loss and heartbreak. You know, if you've lived long enough, you've experienced loss and heartbreak. Money, affluence, to your point, doesn't protect one from experiencing loss or heartbreak um, or, or bad health, right? Or this feeling of fear that all human beings have to deal with at times. So our, our level of affluence cannot protect us from that basic um, part of the human condition, which is that we at times will all suffer, we'll all feel fear, we'll all feel that we're not good enough, we'll all feel deep grief and sadness when we lose someone we love. Um, this is core to us as humans. And that is one of the big um, components of the ACT program is helping, it's one of our pillars. I said, we have these pillars of applied compassion. One of our pillars is helping individuals that come into the program recognize the common humanity, recognize that it is part of what unites us as humans. It is part of what makes us the same as humans, is that we all at some point in our lives suffer. We all know that experience of suffering. Again, that doesn't mean that the suffering is the same. That doesn't mean um, one person's suffering isn't more extreme than the other. We can hold the diversity of suffering together with this basic human condition of suffering. Um, and, and when we do that, it actually unites us to people that we may feel different from, that we may feel disconnected from. And that that's really the goal of common humanity is to unite us, to have us focus on what is it that's the same. As you said, there's growing sense of polarization and division. We, we're constantly bombarded with, with what makes us different. 
And the compassion teachings are trying to balance out those scales by pointing us to something more fundamental that can unite us, that can connect us, that can remind us that at the most core level, we are the same in terms of having the same need to feel healthy, having the same need to feel happy, having the same need for love and connection in our lives. We all share that as humans. Let me ask you a question. It's sort of been interesting to me how uh, um, over the course of many years now, uh, we initially were introduced to mindfulness in the West by John Kabat-Zinn, and there was never any explicit statement about compassion. Yet now, over the course of probably a couple decades, uh, we are seeing ever-increasing importance of compassion and oftentimes uh, combined with mindfulness practice. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think the deeper one goes into any meditative practice, be it mindfulness or, or really and truly any meditative practice from any tradition, at some point you hit suffering right? If you you practice mindfulness long enough, you will come in touch with either your own suffering or the suffering of others. And because what is mindfulness, right? It's paying attention in the most skillful way that we possibly can. And when we do that, we inevitably will bump into parts of our human condition, one of those being suffering. And when we bump into suffering, you know this better than me, just from the scientific point of view, when we bump into suffering and when we meet suffering, compassion arises naturally. We don't have to try to be compassionate. That, that's another one of the big misnomers is people think, oh, I need to you know, learn how to be more compassionate. I need to figure out how to be more compassionate. Actually, what we're teaching in ACT is The moment you're willing to turn towards and face suffering, compassion arises automatically. And so it's no surprise to me that the deeper we go into mindfulness, uh, the deeper we go into the prayer practices or the meditation practices of any tradition, our compassion instinct is going to come online. It's going to come more to the fore because we will come in contact with that suffering. And and as you know, compassion in in distinction to empathy, compassion arises only in response to suffering. Empathy can arise in response to many things. Compassion is a signature (laughs) instinct that we have built in to help us deal, cope, and alleviate suffering. Well, it's interesting you uh, bring up this... um difference between empathy and compassion. Uh, I think there are two important things to emphasize. One is um, empathy uh, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with suffering whatsoever. You can have empathic joy. Uh, It's simply taking on the emotional uh, state of another. But I think uh, also fundamentally, uh, the other difference is one is static in the sense that you may feel something, but compassion requires action. And maybe you can comment on that. Right. And that that really, I'm really glad you brought that in, uh, Dr. Doty, because that that's sort of the thrust of the whole ACT program. We even used the acronym ACT. Robert's big into acronyms. Um, and action 
not only is what makes compassion compassion, right? As you said, empathy can be A for any emotion, but B doesn't include the action component. It's, I think there's a definition I've often heard, empathy plus action equals compassion. And it's the action component of compassion that a lot of the research and evidence suggests can mitigate some of what we might call today empathic distress. So for example, if I'm in an environment where I'm faced with a tremendous amount of suffering in an ongoing way, and I'm not in any, and I'm not taking action directly to alleviate that suffering, I may start to feel empathic distress. In other words, how much how much of this feeling can I bear and and sustain and endure without doing something about it? So it's the doing something about it component of compassion that actually from, you know this better than me, from a brain science standpoint, makes us feel good, helps mitigate against some of the burnout and stress that we feel when we're in situations of ongoing suffering. And so we've harnessed that component in our program. And we've said to people, it's no longer enough to just think about compassion. It's no longer enough to just wish for a better world. What this program is going to do is equip you with the tools, the resources, the practices, and the support to get out there and do something about it. Um, and of course, when we see people doing that again and again, we can see that's where the real impact is. That's where the real transformation happens. It's in the action part of compassion where the change occurs, where the suffering starts to diminish and where the stress of the individual, be it a caregiver, a doctor, a lawyer, a school teacher, um, a child who's dealing with, with anxiety or depression, that's where we start to begin to see the suffering going down when the action component is brought in. Well, I think uh, another interesting aspect, uh, and it relates actually to a quote from the Dalai Lama, he said, being compassion, compassionate is the only time it's okay to be selfish. And what he meant by that, of course, is that uh, when you care for another, when you alleviate the suffering of another, it has a huge positive uh, effect on you, both uh, mentally in the sense that your pleasure and reward centers are stimulated, uh, but also physiologically. Uh, your uh, blood pressure is reduced, your heart rate variability is increased, which is a good thing. Your immune system's boosted. Uh, the levels of cortisol, which are stress, hor uh, stress hormone, are diminished, as well as the production of inflammatory proteins is also diminished. And these are, of course, are associated with a lot of uh, chronic disease states. Absolutely. I mean, you know that way better than me, the, the physical components of it. And absolutely, you know, we, we know that we can see that even just in the four years of this program, I've seen, um, you know, the mentees I've worked with, just the reduction of stress when they can go back out into their workplace environment or their community environment and start to affect real change. Yes, it's helping the environment, no question, but it's also helping them, right? Because they have to interface in this environment. And if it's their workplace, they have to interface there every day. So it's, it's how do we um, alleviate suffering in the external environment and then people do report quite regularly that their own 
levels of stress go down because they feel like they're finally able to be part of the solution. What's the famous, you know, Gandhi quote, be the change. Um, this is another one of our mantras in the program. When people start to be the change or be part of the solution, those distress signals very quickly start to diminish. It's kind of the feeling um, that people have when they look out into the world and they see this tremendous amount of suffering. And if they feel that there's nothing they can do, it creates this feeling of helplessness. Which, which has our stress levels rise. The moment we feel there's something we can do um, to make a difference, there's something we can do to make it a little bit better for someone. Obviously, yes, that's better for the person we're helping, but it also takes us out of that feeling of helplessness and hopelessness and really paralyzation. I think a lot of people, because the levels of suffering um, are so much more available to us in our modern day because of technology. We're, we're constantly bombarded with the global suffering um, around us, and, and that creates for many people a sense of paralysis. Well, this is just so big, there's nothing I can do to make a dent. Um, and again, as I said earlier, when I was talking about the divorce, when people in there are in that sense of paralysis, their own heart starts to shut down. Um, their own quality of life starts to be affected. Their own relationships start to be affected. So if we can take someone out of that paralysis and helplessness and say, okay, you may not be able to solve the global crises, but what is something you can solve? We're all leaders. You know, we, we say in our program, you will graduate as a leader of compassion. And someone might say, well, how am I a leader? I'm just a mom at home, or I'm just, you know, the coach of my son's you know, soccer team. How am I a leader? If, if every human being could look around and recognize the sphere of influence that they do have, it's astonishing to see we're all leaders in our own right. That doesn't mean we're running a company or a country, but we're all leaders and we all have, and I've heard you talk about this, Dr. Doty, we all have this power today, tomorrow to say, how can I affect change right here? Maybe it's just in my family over dinner. Maybe it's just in my neighborhood. Maybe it's just with my office team at work. What is the sphere of influence I have and how can I start now making it the world that I want it to be with the people that I am in that leadership capacity with. And it's incredible. Once people start to realize this and harness their own leadership capacities, that's how compassion can get scaled up in a much bigger way. It's interesting because when people are presented uh, with pictures of overwhelming suffering, they shut down because uh, they feel overwhelmed and uh, not able. And in fact, oftentimes that is in fact the case. You know, how do you deal with so much suffering when you're only one person? And uh, it's interesting because uh, if you look uh, actually how charities function, they'll show a picture of an individual because all of us can relate to one person. All of us can see ourselves uh, potentially helping one person. Uh, but I think the point you make is very, very true. Uh, people frequently don't appreciate that, the, that they have power within themselves uh, to change the world. And while certainly um, 
not everyone can uh, be a world leader. Not everyone can have influence over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. But what we can have is an influence uh, in our world. And uh, when people understand this and appreciate it, and also appreciate that being compassionate or alleviating suffering uh, doesn't necessarily involve, frankly, doing a whole lot. I mean, there's some people who are simply looking uh, for a smile, uh, to sit and listen to them, uh, to maybe uh, share a meal or buy them a meal or a cup of coffee, just something to demonstrate that you recognize their dignity uh, as a human being. <clears throat> and unfortunately, I think that when somebody has been beaten down by the world, they have a sense that they're not important, that uh, their life or, uh, has no meaning. And when somebody steps out and uh, takes action, uh, it can have a profound, profound effect. I, I even recall from uh, experiences I've had where, to me, I was simply being kind, which hopefully is my nature most of the time. Uh, and they come back to me or I run into them uh, months or years later and they say, you know, I can't tell you how much that meant to me. And to me, it didn't really register particularly, but being reminded of that, again, emphasizes how oftentimes we take for granted the power we have uh, to improve the lives of others. Mm, that's so, so true. So uh, moving to me, you know, and, and that's really, that is really why we created this program. You know, it's, it's not just, as you said, those big acts of compassion and kindness, but it's those little micro moments that we have available to us every single day with, and of course it starts right here, you know, with ourself, <laughs> ultimately people's compassion practice often has to start with themselves because if we're, if we're berating and mean to ourselves, um, what is that modeling to our children, right? What is that modeling to the people around us? But then to your point, Dr. Doty, it's often the most simple acts. And I think another thing you just said that struck me that I often talk about in our program is sometimes we can't take the suffering away, right? If my best friend's uh, sister is dying of cancer, I can't change that reality. I can't change that suffering, right? And, and so then I could get hopeless and helpless and be paralyzed because of that. Or I could say, I can't change that suffering, but there's still my friend who's suffering about this. What could I do? Could I go and sit next to her in the hospital and just hold her hand, right? It's those, it's those simple acts that we, we often, you're, you're absolutely right. We often don't realize just how powerful those acts of kindness and compassion are, just how powerful it is to, to hold space and to be there often with compassion. And I, I love the, the word, right? Even just, I'm, I'm big into words. So if you just took the word compassion, the Latin root literally means com, um, to suffer with, com meaning with, 
passio meaning to suffer. So to suffer with. So sometimes it's just about being willing to sit with someone in a moment of suffering and not abandon them. Oh, and how that, simple that can be, right? To change yeah. a moment. No, that that's that's right. Um, the other uh, interesting thing I wanted to chat with you about was um, individuals who have grown up in challenging backgrounds. It always has fascinated me, and, and this is where I'd like your, your thoughts and comments. There are some people who grow up in those backgrounds, overcome them, and uh, have immense gratitude uh, because they recognize that none of us uh, can survive or improve or be our better selves uh, without the assistance of other people. And then there's another subset of people who feel abandoned, that nobody helped them, that they had to struggle and that their success had nothing to do with anyone. It was only about them. And uh, it's interesting, the contrast between these two types of individuals. One uh, has immense gratitude and as a result uh, is motivated to help others uh, who may be in the same situation. And frankly, oftentimes feels uh, the pain they're feeling simply by looking at their circumstance. The other person looks at their circumstances and says, well, I overcame it and nobody helped me. I'm not interested in helping anyone else. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Or have you seen those circumstances or appreciate that? I mean, I can appreciate, and again, I think all of this goes back to what is that early environment and who do we believe we need to be in order to survive that early environment? So if our earliest childhood imprint is, you know, I've got to figure this out. Nobody, nobody is here for me. I've got to survive. I've got to build a thick skin, which eventually turns into, I think what you're talking about an even thicker armor where I can't let anyone in or can't help anyone out. Um, you know, I can, I can actually appreciate and, and even have compassion for the conditions in which that stance maybe at a certain time in someone's childhood needed to be developed in order to survive a horrific upbringing, let's just say, a horrific set of circumstances. I think one of the things that can happen, even with those individuals, over time when they are exposed to the teachings of compassion, is they can recognize a lot of that way of being is a compensation mechanism that was designed to protect them from their own suffering. When people can recognize that, and I'm, and I'm not saying that's easy, I'm just saying that's the inner work <laughs> that we're up to in our program and, in, and then I'm sure in other compassion programs. But when people can touch upon um, through practices of meditation and compassion or through other processes, when can, people can touch upon what's underneath that veneer, which is always suffering, it's not anything else that we're protecting ourselves from, right? Uh, and when people can kind of drill through that armor and, and reach that, they often come upon those other associated things that you're describing, Dr. Doty, a tremendous recognition of 
oh my goodness, there, there was support around me. I may not have recognized it. I may, it may not have registered. Um, they often come in touch with gratitude. They often come in touch with wanting to help. So I, I fundamentally believe that when people are willing to do that in our work and drill underneath, underneath the armor, they reach that same place. Um, it's just getting them in the door to do that, right? Because that, that's the harder sell, so, so to speak, is ha- helping people recognize the suffering that may have led to them developing this way of being. Once they see that, the other work is, is much easier. Oh, I think that, that that's right. It's really getting through that sort of thick armor that so many people uh, have developed. It's getting through that thick armor. And sometimes what happens is life starts to corrode that armor, right? A loss happens. It could be a financial loss. It could be a loss of a company, a loss of a job. It could be a loss of a loved one. It could be a health crisis. Life life wants us to grow. Life wants us to remember our basic true nature, which is compassion. And in my experience, uh, you know, these things happen in life. Um, not as a punishment for us, but as a profound opportunity for us to kind of go back and repair some of those uh, sufferings that may have happened very early on that we just didn't have the capacity to work with as young children, frankly. Well, speaking of uh, young children, uh, when do you think it can be beneficial to, with intention, uh, um, train children more explicitly about compassion. Of course, we all know that children model themselves after their parents uh, for good or uh, bad, unfortunately. Uh, but do you think that uh, we should intentionally uh, try to uh, promote or teach uh, younger children uh, about uh, compassion and maybe uh, combined with a mindfulness type of practice? Absolutely. I mean, I'll preface this by saying that is not my area of expertise. Um, So it'd be good to hear, you know, a child psychologist uh, with a compassion background weigh in on this as well. But I, you know, I can just say from my experience, and as I shared with you, growing up at a very young age, exposed to compassion through these two traditions, Um, I think it was of great benefit to see this modeled in my families, in my my faith-based traditions as a young child. I think it made me much more sensitive to the suffering of others in a good way. Um, Again, I think when the action component is included, because we'd we'd always want to be careful, I'm guessing, especially with younger children, not to overwhelm them, um, you know, by showing too much suffering, especially to a child who, who wouldn't even know how to cope or affect change. But if you boiled it down to, again, what's the suffering right here in this little environment that we do have power to change? I, I remember as a kid, um, we did this thing, our family um, did this thing where on Christmas morning, we would deliver we were, we were part of a volunteer organization and we would deliver Christmas presents to individuals in our community who couldn't afford to buy Christmas presents for their own children. And even as a young, young child, I remember this instilling in me, wow, 
first of all, there's people out there that don't have the privileges I have, right? I mean, that was a great eye opener as a kid because as a kid by our nature, it's all about us, right? That's just part of natural childhood development, me, me, me. And to be exposed to that at such a young age and be doing something about it, right? So I wasn't just exposed to the suffering. We were going and getting these gifts and wrapping these gifts and delivering them on, on Christmas morning on these doorsteps. I think the combination of both, being exposed to my privilege, being exposed to the fact that others were suffering and being part of a solution, it was incredibly empowering as a young child. Um to feel all of that. And I remember it making me more sensitive going back to school, more sensitive to the children around me in my environment. So I am a big proponent of, I mean, the things we teach kids in school, geography, history, remember your capitals. It seems so basic to me that we could introduce a palatable, safe and healthy compassion curriculum. I know there are ACT mentees whose capstone projects um, have focused on bringing in what we might call compassion curriculum into a school setting and doing it in a way that's palatable, digestible, healthy, um, and again, affects change for a particular group of students given what they're suffering with. Um, anxiety and depression right now being two of the biggies that we know our teens um, and even preteens are are really struggling with these days. One of the comments I would make, though, is also that uh, you also have to offer the teachers uh, support and these types of teachings because many of them feel overworked, stressed, anxious themselves. And you can't expect them to uh, engage or focus on such a practice to their students unless they have developed calmness and uh, a sense of self-compassion and compassion for others and have addressed their own suffering in many ways. Absolutely. You're right. You're absolutely right. And this is a lot of what we're seeing with our capstone projects um, that are being brought into healthcare is that we first have to help the staff right? Deal with their own stress, suffering, the burnout that they're experiencing. Because if, if the staff are struggling, how can we expect them to provide the best care for the patient? So a hundred percent. And that's a lot of the capstone projects coming out of the program are designed to help the individual, whether it's a caregiver or a group of caregivers or a team so that they can then go back and help their customers or their patients or their clients for, for the reasons you just described. And that's why we train our ambassadors in their own personal development as well, right? If I'm going to go out and ambassador this into a company, I've got to be first and foremost, uh, deeply connected to compassion, both for myself and know how to practice that in moments of my own distress and suffering. And then also, what do I do when I'm faced out in the world with that suffering? How do I um, use these principles and practices of compassion to help interface in this suffering world that we're dealing with right now? Well, and it definitely seems to, uh, to uh, be uh, at a... Um difficult time with so many parts of the world suffering, so many people suffering. Uh, and again, it does, I think, for many people and myself, uh, sometimes feel overwhelming. 
But I think, uh, again, the point is that uh, we do what is within our capacity to do. And I think we need to keep that in mind. We do what it is within our capacity to do. There is so much within our capacity to do, and it's empowering and lifting up people to look around and see that and harness within them the capacity to affect, again, those micro changes that we can make. Well, uh, Nilama, believe it or not, we've uh, actually gone to an hour. Uh, maybe uh, you can leave us with uh, some last words. Um, uh, you know, based on what we've been talking about. My last words would be for anyone listening, if it's helpful to remember that compassion is really who we are. It's our deepest nature. It's intrinsic to us as humans. You don't need a PhD in compassion to be compassionate in the next moment. It's it's available to us, it's fundamental to our core, and it can get easily blocked with the stress and the suffering that we regularly encounter as humans. So whatever you can do as an individual to get reconnected back to your core and then to choose the next moment to enact that compassion in small ways, in simple, ordinary ways, in the next Zoom meeting you're having, in the next interaction with your children, in the next team meeting. This is how we literally change the world uh, one moment at a time. So thank you so very much for having me on, Dr. Doty. It's been, as always, fun and a pleasure to engage with you on this topic that's so near and dear to my heart both of our hearts. Well, listen, you take care. Uh, much love to you. And to anyone who's listening, uh, please check out the CCARE website, ccare.stanford.edu. And you can learn a lot more, not only about compassion, but specifically the ACT uh, Ambassadors Program. So thank you all for listening. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Mm-hmm.